Let us pray. Open our hearts and our minds so that we can understand the fullness of your word. Fill us with the light of the Holy Spirit and bless the servant you have chosen to share the word proclaimed today. In the name of Christ, the word revealed. Amen. So our second reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and then 16 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. And greet, one and, and, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out, and go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this. The kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you listens to me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submitted to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the great joys or struggles maybe of being a a, a preacher is letting the Spirit bring that text to preach on to you. Um, It's difficult sometimes to want to find a text that meets maybe your worldview or where you might be thinking. And uh, thankfully, a long time ago, somebody created the lectionary text, which is a three-year cycle of, uh, of text for us to preach. And I am preaching from the lectionary today. Um, it, but that's very helpful because it gives us lots of uh, liturgical help and music help we can work on. But it also maybe preaches, makes you preach some things sometimes you wouldn't normally preach. Um, sometimes you look at a lectionary test and go, I'm not preaching that. There's no way. Um, but there's other times you get two fantastic readings like we have today that are, that are really excellent uh, for us to ponder uh, during a, a difficult time in, in our world. 
So first, uh, we, hear, we hear the story of Naaman, the commander of uh, the Syrian army. They'll give it the modern name. That's, he's from that area of Syria. And I think it's important we kind of understand uh, the historic uh, piece of that. And thank you, Greg, for reading that for us. Uh, so in the, first, uh, in the first verse that we, we, heard, to re, we heard today, Naaman, the ca- commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man. He was great with his master and was in high favor. And because of him, because of Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So let's unpack that first little bit of introduction there. Uh, you, you think about the, the kingdom of Jerusalem, the, the David as the ruler of, of that whole holy land, and then uh, David passes away, Solomon comes along, and then after Solomon, we have this series of kings, and, those, and the country divides itself with Judah to the south, with Jerusalem, and Israel to the top with Samaria. So Israel's kind of up at the top there, and then off to the north, East of that is Syria uh, and the town of Damascus. And so that's where uh, Naaman and his king uh, are. And they don't like the Israelites very well and vice versa. So they fight all, all the time along that border. There's rage back and forth, stealing crops and goods and people uh, as they take back. And so we, we see that later in the story, how that happens. But here's this great man, this great warrior that has risen to power um, in this region, in this vital region of the world at that time, yet he has leprosy. Now, how can that be? Uh, Leprosy at that time was uh, something that was considered unclean. It was a visible sign that maybe uh, God or whatever God you worshiped had you in disfavor. Um, so it's interesting that this person with this affliction has risen to such power, but we see that because of the Lord, he has done so. Um, so uh, he, so he, he finds out through this uh, slave girl that maybe that there might be some help for him in Israel. And so he goes to his boss, the king of Syria, and says, hey, I want to go down there and, and check this out and see if I can become cured. Now, the interesting thing is he goes to the king, and the king immediately goes to the king of Israel, not the holy man of Samaria, where he was told to go. So that's the first thing to kind of keep in mind. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter from, the king, from his king to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you uh, Naaman, my servant, that you may cure his leprosy. Now, first of all, the king of, of, of Israel freaks out because he knows he can't do anything about this. And also, I think it's important we understand what, he has, uh, what uh, Naaman has brought along with him uh, these 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing, um, you know, we could, we could get caught in the weeds of the value of all that, but, but most scholars would estimate that into, be, into the millions of dollars. So this is a gift of millions of dollars from one king to another to get some help for his uh, faithful servant. So you see the pattern that these people are dealing in power. They, they only can relate to other people in power, and they never quite get to maybe where the real power that they were supposed to go to, which is the holy man. 
But finally, the holy man, uh, Elisha, the man of God, it says in Scripture, heard of the king's dilemma and that he had torn his clothes. And so he sends the king a message and he says, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me and, and let him know that there is a prophet in Israel. Uh, so, uh, so Naaman uh, gets sent to the, to the prophet, probably the king thinking, good, he'll get mad at him and won't get mad at me and I'll be in the clear. Um, but uh, Naaman is not happy with this. You know, he, he wants the, the king to take care of this. And so, but he, he follows along and he goes uh, to where he's supposed to go. Uh, Elisha is so convinced that this is going to work um, that he doesn't even come out and talk to him. He just sends an unnamed servant out there, um, and, uh, which infuriates uh, Naaman. I mean, he's, he's upset. He's so upset he won't do it. He walks away. His servants intervene, and as you heard this morning, say, no, give it a try. I mean, kind of basically what he got to lose. Um, and so he dips himself in the Jordan seven times. And according to the word of this man of God, his flesh is restored, the flesh of a little child, and he is clean. Um, now, it's important to understand that last little sentence, too, because uh, children in that day and time weren't really seen with the uh, importance and reverence that we see children today. So to call this great man a little child was basically saying he's no longer significant uh, in this world, but he has made pure. So for me, this this reading that we've had here is for God pointing to us and telling us that in the kingdom of God, the ordinary is always mightier than the powerful and the wealthy. Um, God led one of the most powerful and wealthy men in this, in this very important region in the world to be healed, and it's done with simple river water, uh, no grand ceremony, no great fire and smoke. I mean, I think about the Wizard of Oz, you know, when the curtain pulls back and you see the wizard and he's got his hands on those levers and he's creating all that stuff. I mean, th that's what they wanted, um, but that's not how it works. Uh, David Forney, one of my professors at Columbia Seminary in, in writing about this text said this, uh, Naaman um, and his this large entourage with all these gifts uh, comes to Elisha to receive this, this personal healing. But contrary to his expectations, he's greeted by an unnamed messenger who gives him a simple cure for his affliction. But for a man like Naaman, this is just not how it's done. A proper healing has the prophet personally in attendance, calling in a loud voice upon the name of his God, waving his hands over the spot of affliction, and it cures him. But the power in this story is not in or localized in wizards and kings and wealth or standard operating procedures or the presence of some famous river. God's providence comes from the suggestion of a young slave girl, the words of some lowly and unseen prophet, the encouragement of servants and washing in a river of really no importance. The healing power of God resides in the ordinary. Now let's look for a moment at how God chose to live among us. God broke through time and space and became flesh and lived among God's people. And how did he come to his people? Did God appear as a magnificent warrior dressed in battle gear, a great king or a powerful prince? And where did God, where was God born? 
The temple in Jerusalem would have been a great place. That was the locus of that faith. Maybe some grand palace somewhere or some major city that was responsible for trade and industry in that time. But no, God chose the ordinary. A simple carpenter and his wife for parents, a backwater town that no one had ever heard of. His place of birth was actually a lowly feeding trough for animals. Jesus didn't go to the best schools of the land. He didn't study under the holy chosen people of his faith. He didn't join the army and rise through the ranks or become a wealthy merchant. I mean, isn't that how powerful and important people become so powerful and important? Jesus' early life is so ordinary that no one even thought it important to write about it. Jesus was just an ordinary guy from an ordinary place that changed the world. Sometimes it's more difficult for us to see God in the ordinary We tend to only want to see God in the grand and the glorious, the powerful. But the miracle of the incarnation is that God became one of us in Jesus. And Jesus was so ordinary that there's not even a description of his physical appearance in the New Testament. Jesus was so ordinary that when the Jewish authority decided to arrest him, they had to pay one of his disciples to point him out so they wouldn't arrest the wrong person. And Jesus teaches his disciples and you and me over and over again to not take on the trappings of greatness, but to be humble servants. We see that in our New Testament reading today in Luke chapter 10. um, The Lord appointed those 70s to go out and uh, to go out ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So Jesus promises that the harvest is abundant. He sees abundance where others sometimes see scarcity. This is not because he's some kind of eternal optimist, but rather his faith, his faith is in the Lord of the harvest. Jesus doesn't send out the 70 to prepare the harvest, It's God's responsibility to prepare that harvest. Jesus commissions these 70 people to gather in the harvest that's already been prepared and to pray that more laborers will join them in this very important work. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, you must first say, peace be to this house. This is about distractions. Don't bring your personal baggage into the conversation. Don't let your vision impede God's vision for the people that you meet. Be open to God's Spirit doing a new thing in our midst. And finally, as the 70 return, they nevertheless do not, he said, nevertheless do not rejoice in this, that the Spirit is subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What Jesus is saying is what matters more than earthly and spiritual success of those of us that follow Jesus is that eternal relationship that we have with God and that we enjoy through Jesus. Whatever we do, whatever we do in word and deed, whatever we think of our, is our greatest achievement is, it really doesn't matter. Because the kingdom of God and your relationship with God is of the utmost importance. 
It is a relation built on grace. You know, we're always kind of in that tension in between the grace that we receive from God and the grace that we can share with others. So how we handle the ordinary will be one of the measures of how we see God in the world, how we experience God's grace. When Jesus and his followers finally reach Jerusalem, God will glorify the ordinary for the world to see. And nowhere is that more evident than this table here in front of me. The night before his arrest and his death, Jesus took ingredients of a typical family meal and turned them into the presence of the divine, a meal for the salvation of the world. So instead of looking for God in the grand and magnificent, our best bet is to look for God in the ordinary. Water, wine, juice, bread, friend, neighbor, family member, stranger. For it's when we see through the eyes of God the ordinary, that we see the true magnificence of God, a God who sees the magnificence in each and every one of us as those he created us to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.